Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. They ended up killing Osama bin Laden, but in, in doing so, Osama bin Laden been replicated hundreds of thousands of times. You might kill a man, but you don't kill an idea. Hi, this is Christoph Triumph, your man in Sweden, doing interviews in English. Just a quick reminder, Varvet is sponsored by Uber, almost like taxi, but cooler, safer and cheaper. And if you don't already have an Uber account, you should get one. I'm actually considering not renting a car next time I'm going to the US and just Uber myself around New York and LA. So if you don't have an Uber account and are in one of Sweden's two biggest cities, please use the referral code VARVET and you will get 150 Swedish kroner to Uber for. That's going to take you places. So thank you very much Uber and thank you listener for using this code. Talking to me today is Mr. Robert King. For 29 years, King occupied a cell at the Angola prison in Louisiana. A cell just under 3 meters long, 2 meters wide, with a steel bed and a sink that also doubled as a toilet. In this windowless space, he was in total isolation for at least 23 hours a day. For crimes, he says he didn't commit. He and his comrades, Albert Woodfox and Herman Wallace, the so-called Angola Three, have between them served more than 100 years in solitary confinement. All three say they were targeted for their activism as members of the Black Panther Party. King's sentence was overturned in 2001 and together with Amnesty International he is still fighting for the release of his friend Albert Woodfox who has been in isolation for most of his 42 years in prison. Mr. Wallace unfortunately died a few years ago. Today, Mr. King is a free man. He's an author, a candy maker and an activist, focusing on campaigning against abuses in the criminal justice system and fighting for Albert's freedom. And when I met Mr. King, he was in Stockholm to raise awareness around this campaign and he had some help from Swedish artist Maya, who recently recorded a song to support his course it's called yellow ribbon and you can find it on uh, itunes for instance and uh, this interview with mr robert king is recorded on january 15th 2015 so louisa please roll the tape how are you sir I'm okay. What brings you to Sweden? The thing that brings me to Sweden, the thing that <laughs> has been probably propelling me and, and causing me to travel, you know, for the last 13, 14 years is a campaign to shed light on the case of 
what has become known as the Angola Three, in which I am the freed member, the only freed member now, the Angola Three. Uh, Herman Wallace, he was freed a uh, couple of days la- um, last year sometime, but he passed away two mm. days after he, he was. Herman. He got to be free for like three days. About three days, yes. Yeah. And then he passed away. He had advanced liver cancer. His case was overturned. It should have happened years ago, but uh, his case was overturned and he was ordered released from prison on the day that his case was overturned. And he was released from prison, but he died a couple of days later. And you have done uh, loads of media here, I guess. A little a bit, but of course, that's you know that's that's usual. Yeah. Wherever I go, if I travel in the country, out out the country, if I'm on you know speaking about our case, then the media uh, comes around. How did you get to meet Maya? Who? Well, actually, yeah, it was probably a bit better. Uh, I met Maya through. Amnesty, actually, may I read a piece that Amnesty did on Angola 3, I think it was last year some at some point, and she read about it, and I think to read her story, she she mentioned that she was in, you know, had read the fact that Albert had been in solitude for 42 years, and sometimes she seeks a solitude, and it was by choice, but here was false solitude, And she decided to read the case, and she was appalled by what she read. And uh, this motivated her to contact, according to her, contact Albert in correspondence. They corresponded for a bit, and as a result of correspondence, she learned more. And they developed this this corresponding relationship, and she decided to to write a song called, you know, uh, Yellow Ribbon. And so my reason for being here is I think she contacted Amnesty, and in collaboration with Amnesty, I'm here to maybe promote her song with regards to Albert, to tie Yellow Ribbon in commemoration of him, or A3. I say I'm here to, you know, to kind of support that effort. And maybe we could play a little uh, of of that song, of course, in 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 the show. But of course, yeah. But that's fantastic. And for the listeners who aren't familiar with Maya, I can tell that she's a Swedish artist. Mm-hmm. She had a huge hit. What can it be like? Fifteen years ago, something like that. All uh, about the money. And all about the money. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sir. So you have for the last almost fifteen years worked to sort of raise awareness about your case and mm-hmm. about the uh, Angola 3. You were in isolation for almost 30 years. And mm-hmm. because I know that your your body sort of, anyway, f- a couple of years ago, it, you still felt it sort of in your body and you still suffer from parts of, of isolation. Could you could you tell me how how it has affected your person? Physically and well, you know, I imagine now, you know, being in prison period can impact you psychologically and physically, and also, but it can be exaggerated. This situation is exaggerated when you are placed in a solitary confinement in a cell that is six by nine by twelve feet long for twenty three hours a day, and sometimes a twenty four. It can impact you not just physically but psychologically as well. Of course. You know, people ask me, well, how did it impact me? I'm sure I'm impacted by it. You cannot get dipped in waste and not come up 
smelly. You cannot go through certain, you know, experiences and not have some impact or effect upon you, even if these, if this effect is not apparent or is not really seen. With me, however, and I think with Albert and maybe some other people, I think the idea of resiliency and being able to absolve the impact of prison in solitary confinement was something that I don't want to attribute to to my own my own statue. I think there was some external forces that allowed me to to do this, and the external force that allowed me to do this is I had become at a certain point in my life uh, politically aware of what was happening, and so being having uh, developing this political consciousness. I was able to to weather whatever storm it may have been because I was able to put into context my experience and why I was going through these experiences. And being able to put that in context kind of served as a flotation for me to to, to survive. But you need to know this, and I, I let people know this, that it's kind of hard to get dipped in waste and not come up smelling, even if the impact is not seen, it's felt, and... Um, it impacts you in some way, and, and like I say, even if it is not seen, you're impacted by it. But uh, I, I think I have managed well with the fact that I have this buoyancy, this sort of like insulation that have shielded me with this consciousness, this political awareness as to why things were like they were. Are you bitter? You know, people ask me that quite a bit. Am I bitter? And they ask me, am I angry? Am I bitter? I don't, I don't think I'm bitter, or if I am bitter, I'm bitter enough to want to do something about this. There is a, not so much as a bitterness. I think that's too steep of a word. It's more like an indignation, mm. and so like a benevolent, or some people call it a righteous indignation. So it's a benevolent indignation that I have. And so that is my beef, but this does not drive me to be Bitter because bitterness in 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 the in the sense of bitterness, if I understand that particular term, it can only get in the way and, and impact what you're trying to trying to show. So bitterness has no really no 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 real place. But there is a benevolent indignation, and this is what motivates me and drives me to do what I I want to do. So I can't say I'm. I am, you know, bitter. And people ask me, am I angry? If you ask me, am I angry? Of course I'm angry, and I'm angry enough to do something about it. Yeah. I was released February 8, 2001, and uh, nearly, you know, 14 years ago. And and since that time, I've been traveling, you know, trying to shed light on our situation, the situation that I went through, and the situation that Herman, before he passed, went through, and what Albert is going through now. And But, of course, there is a much broader picture Ours was just tip a tip of the iceberg. There are so many people who did not or was not fortunate enough to get the kind of platform that we, we, we've had to get the support that we had. When people learn about our case, it became public knowledge, and people got on board and rallied, and it started out as a local support group, and it has now become an international movement, so to speak, not so much as an international movement within itself, but it has kind of claps with the other movements that reflects on the same thing on a much larger scale. Mm. But tail up the the story of the Angola 3 fits right into 
into all of this, and so this is this is the this is where we are now. And did you know already on the inside that once you are free, that you, this was what you were gonna do? I had no idea. No, no okay. that was not a plan at all. We did not. None of this was actually planned. We did not even dub ourselves the Angola Three. Uh, once people found out, a former friend and a former member of the Black Panther Party, who, like we were, he had he was a member of the Black Panther Party, and he realized that we were in prison, you know, for, for a couple of decades. And what he decided to do was, he got a, a group of anarchists and a, a group of grassroots people to begin writing uh, Herman and Albert initially and to go visit Herman and Albert, and then later it extended to myself. And we had been, all three of us were in CCR. This was a place in Angola known as CCR, which means close cell restriction, which means solitary. And we had been there longer than any other prisoner. And so we became known as the Angola Three by the group that started visiting in those initial years, which was sometime around maybe the late 90s. After 29 years, when you step out of the prison, what was that like? <laughs> I mean, to set your feet on your on regular ground. I, so, yeah. I, I knew exactly what you mean. It's kind of hard to describe. It was surreal. I mean, I had been, I had been you know, in prison for a total of 31 years, more than 31 years, in fact. And it was kind of hard to conceive. You know, I had a huge sentence. I had a sentence that would not allow me to ever be free again. Of course, I didn't believe that because I fought against it, but there seemed to have been no, or seemed to be no way out. And once I saw that there was a possibility of, of my being released and then ultimately released, it was surreal. It was hard, kind of hard to believe. It took, it took weeks for me to not wake up from a sleep and saying to myself with elation, I'm free, I'm out. Or not so much as being free, but I'm out, I'm out. Am I really out? So it was something like that. What was the th first thing you did? I guess there was a, maybe a, a number of firsts. Because when I was released from, from, I was released the same day I went to court. And the people who were in court with me at the hearing, they followed followed me to the gate and they waited outside the gate. I was supposed to be released the next day on 12.01. But the warden realized, and then they realized that they had miscalculated my time and actually I was overdue. So he decided to, the warden decided to release me on that very day. And so when I was released, I was releasing to, in, in, in the midst of a group of people who had been in code that I had no idea was waiting at the gate for me. And so I met a, a bunch of friends and supporters who had become friends and supporters of Angola 3, and they were glad to see me and, uh, and glad to embrace me. And so we all got in, into calls, and we'd driven away from Angola. And uh, I went to my, uh, my aunt's house. But the, the first thing I, I did was, you know, embrace the group that had, uh, you know, supported us uh, all you know, the years, you know, before I was released from prison. So... That was the first. People asked me, what did I eat? I can't recall. Exactly. I think the thing that I wanted, uh, the thing that I really wanted was something that I really didn't get. And, but what I did, I just, I, I made it simple. I got, I got a roast beef sandwich. Yeah. 
Yeah, I got a roast beef sandwich. And then the next day... Was that something that you had sort of well, dreamt of? No, it's something that, that, that I hadn't dreamed about a roast beef sandwich. What I really, the thing that I really wanted, I got it, I imagined the next day or two after I was released. And uh, I had an urge over the years for a lemon, to see a real lemon and to, you know, I used to like to, when I was a kid, take peppermint or take sugar sometime and put in a lemon and to get the experience of that sweet and sour taste. And so the mint, sweet, sour taste of lemon, I had missed that over the years because when I was a kid, I used to used to uh, eat that. And so what I did was if someone saw me with a peppermint stick the next day walking around with a lemon, you know, sticking it in, it was because of that. Yeah. And that was, I think that was one of the first, the first thing that I did. Yeah, one of the first things that I did that I had wanted to do for years. Of course, everything else came in succession. I'd I done a number of other things afterwards, but the... But the lemon, it was the first thing, and, and leaving prison in the midst of a lot of supporters, that was, and you know, greeting them and thanking them, that was, you know, one of the first things that I did. Yeah, if I was to be in prison, I, I have been in prison for twelve hours, I think, mm-hmm. and I didn't have the time to sort of have any idea. I just wanted to get out, but but except for that, I guess that I mean, food would be such thing that you would dream about? Mm-hmm. I mean, or if, is food okay in prison? Or was it? Well, it depends on where you are. Food isn't that, that bad. It's palatable. You could, you could eat it. Of course, there are certain food that you never got that, I, that I've sensed in the ensuing weeks and days that I was out. I, I got those food that I, I, I didn't get. But that was something that I really wanted. It was the taste of good, good food, which was very doing... That period of time, the food wasn't very good, not taste-wise anyway, mm. but food was one of the things that, that I wanted to to experience, and I, I, I had my share of that. I did. I, all the food that I missed in the ensuing weeks, I, I got an opportunity to experience and to eat all that food. You had a family when you went into prison? I had a family when I went into prison. Um, Did you still have a family when you went? Well, came out thirty some years later, thirty one years later. So, of course, my I had married, and my wife had a son in the in those years, the early years. So, my son, as a result of an accident, he fallen from a window, oh. two story window, and he developed a tumor as a result of it. During that time, the doctors had did not de- detected that he had developed a brain tumor, and he was bleeding. Oh. He had hematoma. Okay, I'm so and sorry. And he he died, and so I had an immediate family, my wife, and of course our separation. Uh, you know, being separated, she ended up remarrying, going to California, which is cool. Okay, I couldn't fault her. I was couldn't bring her to prison with me, and not that I would have, even if I could have, but she would have come either way. <laughs> I wouldn't blame her, you know. Mm. But I had a I had a. Another extended family. I had uncles, aunts, cousins, and I still have a aunt, uncle, and a, and first, second, third, fourth, fifth, probably six cousins. Yeah. So I have a huge extended family, but immediate family was gone months after I was arrested, which was really in the early seventies. It must have been so strange. D- did you get to watch television and so forth? I, I, at different points in time in my incarceration, where I was placed, we weren't allowed television initially. But what we did, we filed different lawsuits and different grievances 
stating that we had a right. People on death row had television, and we didn't begrudge them. We felt that CCR should have uh, television as well. And so it was during that time they decided to put television on the till, not in our cells, but out on the till in front of our cells where we had to watch through the bars. Okay, yeah. I'm thinking that because when you when you stepped into prison, the society around you sort of must have been another world when you stepped out. Of course, uh, with during that time, technology had risen to a pretty high degree. I mean, you know, there wasn't a mobile phone at the time, a computer, IBM machine, but they had no computers. No. And so, so uh, I stepped out into a, a world that had become very uh, technological. And, uh, of course, don't get me wrong, we were in prison and we kind of kept up with current events. So we understood what was happening. Having television, and we were allowed, even when we didn't have television, if you could afford a radio, we were allowed to have radios and you could listen to certain news and find out exactly what was going on. While you could not partake in it or participate in it, what you could do is realize that these things were taking place. Uh, you had an idea of what was going on. And with the television itself, you could see some of the stuff that was going on. So, And then you could feel and see the changes. Uh, this was a time, this was during the Vietnam War. The Black Panther Party was in the heyday at this time. You had students protesting all over America with regards to the Vietnam War. And many of the, all, most all of these students, Kent State, Ohio State, Jackson State, and you know, and all of these, most of these students from Kent State, Ohio State, who were students that were shot and killed by the National Guard for pro- protesting the war, they were whites. And so my, my point is that there was an unrest in society with regards to how the American government, how the political wheel of the American government were spreading the, the, some of what people considered corruption and devastation all over the world by bombing Vietnam and going, you know, people suffering as a result of interference in their their political and uh, lives. And so it wasn't just the, the the influences were out there. It's sort of like, you know, revolution. When I say revolution, not so much as violent, anything like that, but there was, things were evolving and, and people were, All of this evolution or revolution was in the air, and it was catching. And it was something that, you know, in hindsight, in retrospect, I consider it was beautiful because it was part of my growth. It helped me to grow. It helped me to realize just why things were like they were. And at the same time, when they did send me to prison, and I was placed in a 6 by 9 by 12 foot cell, it kind of put things in the context as to why it was happening. Mm. I was able to weather that the stone because I was able to put it in the context, okay, this is why they're doing this. Yeah. So I was able to deal with it better. Were you thinking about suicide, for instance? That can happen. No, I, I, I didn't. I, I'll say this, you know, the contemplation of suicide was something that I, I think I wanted to do it. At, I, no, I, I don't, I, I can't say that I contemplated suicide. I think I needed to shed light on what was going on and being politically aware and being able, like I say, put things in context Suicide was an option, but it wasn't an option for me. If I was going to commit suicide, it would be, it wouldn't be self-inflicted. It would be based on some being impelled to do something to force them to kill me. Other than that, I would not self-inflict. <laughs> you know, I had no suicidal tendencies. I didn't feel that I was in a desperate or hopeless uh, situation because there were other people who felt the same way I felt. 
So it meant this, that it, it gave meaning to, to what I was going through, but it also gave meaning to life mm-hmm. that I, I should live. And I began to, you know, uh, that I didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't going to allow myself becoming to be, you know, to inflict self, you know, death on, uh, a death on, my, on myself. It just, I wouldn't make no sense. I figured that if my life would be much more meaningful if I lived out my life, define it, continue to define it, and let people expose just exactly what was going on, then I think, you know, I, I must have felt, I had to feel that it would, my life would be much more meaningful. No, I did not. If the thought of suicide ever occurred to me, it was a fleeting thought. Okay. I can't say it never occurred. I have no rec- recognition. But if it occurred to me, I would say this, that if it ever came to my mind, it was a fleeting thought and that that. That, that had no place to take roots nowhere in my being. Did you think about uh, escaping? <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. I escaped once. I escaped out the New Orleans Palace prison. I, before I was sent to prison, I, 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 of course I escaped because I was sentenced unjustly. They had offered me, uh, that arrested uh, me on a choice that I was not so-called perpetrator, did not remotely resemble me. They offered me a 15-year sentence. I refused to take it. And they brought me to trial and gave me a 35-year sentence. And when they gave me a 35-year sentence, it was in a 10 to 2 verdict. Uh, 10, 10 people were persuaded to say that I did, but two people insisted that I did not do it, but that was a majority. And so uh, instead of the 15 years, they gave me 35 years. And when they gave me 35 years, it was at this particular time, I really began to put things in a context because I had, by this time, developed a political consciousness I had came in contact with some members of the Black Panther Party by this time. So when they sent me to prison in, in April, not April, but in May 72, I was able to put things in into context. Do you believe in God? I believe I'm very spiritual. <laughs> People ask me that all the time. I think we are gods. I think we have this ability. And if you believe the Bible, if you believe Jesus, and I've read the Bible. I read the whole six, six books the 39 in the Old Testament, the 27 in the New. So uh, from I read from Genesis to Revelation, you know, <laughs> from from Genesis to Malachi, from, Revel- uh, from Matthew to Revelation. So, and then my mother, my gra- I was baptized when I was nine years old. My grandmother, who I call, whom I call mother, raised me. And so I went to church. We were forced to go to church. So I was, so I had the traditional belief in God mm-hmm. and Jesus, you know, being the son of God and so forth and so on. And uh, I had that concept, but it was more uh, of a religious, I call that, you know, religious nature. I had no what I call spiritual contact with a super or a supreme being, whether it was myself or whether it was some other source. But I had, you know, it wasn't until I think that I became politically aware of what was going on when I learned the, the history of oppression in this country, especially with regards to black people, I developed a spirituality about this that surpassed religion because religion to me did not, could not put it in context. Religion to me is a system of belief that, are, you know, that allow you to accept suffering, believing that this is your destiny and so forth and so on. I had remembered Martin Luther King. I also remember Malcolm X, uh, but I remember people before Martin Luther King, Luther King and Malcolm X. I learned throughout the course of my, my confinement this particular time, I, I learned about chattel slavery, 
the fact that we were, you know, blacks were considered subhuman and, and you know, and I understood all of the people back then, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner, Sojourner Truth, these other people, Frederick Douglass, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, all of these people, you know, fighting. I remember reading about the Niagara Movement, which later became the NAACP that was established way back in 1909. I remember Elijah Muhammad. I mean, all, all of these people who were speaking, but about the condition, the past condition and the present condition of blacks in the in society. But these are the things when I when I embrace this knowledge, I think this served more to give me the spirituality mm. that I need that 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 kind of give me the buoyancy that in spite of the fact that I had read the entire book, that I had embraced a religion that my my, my mom and my family had embraced, that did not sustain me. It was uh, the fact that I think my spirituality came when I learned of my, my destiny, when I learned uh, what was destined for me and my people in a society that that was built on op- oppressing certain people based on, a, on the color of their skin. When I realized this was going on and I saw the hypocritical aspect of it, because on one hand it says one thing and on the other hand it does some other thing, I think my spirituality developed mm-hmm. and, and my belief and not religion, but my belief in 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 it's in, in something much greater than myself. It really developed, but then again, I also developed and evolved to the point of believing, you know, that we all are, and uh, that we all are to some degree gods. We just have to reach that point, and of course, we come in contact with that quote, that supreme us, a supreme being, or whomever. But I do believe, yes, I am very spiritual. But I, I, I'm not traditional. No, you don't go to church. I don't know. I don't. I, I, of course, I attend church. I'm not at Boyce gone, but I do not make it a regular be because, let me tell you, you, you got more devils in church than anywhere else. <laughs> so, I, uh, <laughs> so I mean, and, but I think my, my belief is in my, in, in my heart. What you do in your heart and what you do in your life is what you project to the world is how people define you or what people should define you from and not the fact that you have to go to a church in order to exhibit this. You do not have to enter a church to do this. I don't know no commandment that tells anybody except a commandment from some individual who may have a church and they tell you, well, this is the way it goes. Oh, that's nice if people want to do that. I think I don't have to go to church in order to be in touch with the supreme being. Is there still racism in the United States of America? Yes, there's still racism, of course. Race, race, the system was founded upon racism. Racism permeates the society. And the fact that people will tell you, you know, now they will probably use the fact that they have elected a black man as president as a barometer to, to try to project the fact that racism does not exist. Racism still exists. It was the system, like I said, itself was founded upon discrimination and racism. And then, the, 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 you know, uh, the way uh, President Obama was treated, and to some degree still, but like I say, he's a fighter and he's doing much greater than anyone I've ever seen in my lifetime. But, you know, the, 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 the fact is this, that many people believe that with the fact that he was elected, that racism does not exist anymore anymore. Uh, 
in that society. The fact is this that it, it exists much more and you could see when he was elected how people on in the in the Republican Party, the Tea Party and how they reacted to his and other people around the uh, around the country. But the majority of the people elected him um, president. I'm not saying when I say racism is still in America and that it permeates American society, I'm not painting a, a broad brush saying that everybody or uh, every white person in America are racist, that nothing could be further from the truth. I know better than that, but I know we live in a racist system yeah. that operates on and discriminating against certain people. And I do know that there are even whites who aren't racist that had never made the connection of the privilege that they can have in their white skin and that this privilege is not accorded to people who have a different skin color. And I think people are catching up with this. And I think whites have begun to realize that they have privileged in the fact that they are white they have the privileges that kind of elevate them to a, that degree. But the point is, everyone in America, we live in, a, in America, we live in a society, a capitalist society that is based on profit. And the profit goes to the few, not to the majority uh, of whites, even though this is something during slavery. You know, whites, you had only about, what, maybe— maybe 10,000 people who owned slaves. All the rest of the 10, 12, 14 million whites, they were considered poor whites. And some went further than that in describing them, but they were considered poor whites. They had nothing, you know. But nevertheless, the fact that they were able to take refuge in this whiteness, saying that, well, I'm better than you because I could never be a slave. You're a slave. And they had some slaves who who lived on a plantation, lived better, better, you know, because they were provided, but they were property. Yeah. They ate better. You know, they may have slept better. They may were much warmer, but it's like you treat, you know, you, you, you treat your, your property and you kind of treat it as if you don't want it to go to waste, you know. You, so you kind of cull it, and, but uh, whites were not slave, and so they couldn't be culled. They couldn't be protected as property the way, you know, blacks were. So this is the reason why you say, well, slaves may have lived, quote, better at this particular time. But the fact is this, that they took consolation. They consoled whites at this time, consoled themselves, you know, with the knowledge that they could never be slaves no matter what, and that no matter how down they were in the society, they weren't slaves, So and that, that they were better. But, but as time went on, all of this, I think the fact that they were white and they had privilege in their white skin showed up because that takes place. Now, you can see that, how whites in certain job situations, whites uh, uh, get the better better jobs in still in most cases in some employment, not everywhere in the states, but whites are really destined for the better jobs. They get more pay in certain, in many instances, still in the state than, than blacks for doing, and blacks can do, a, in some most cases, do a much better job at it than whites. But nevertheless, they were, they are relegated in, in pay scales to getting less than uh, a white counterpart might get for doing the same job or for a lesser job. How could you change this? How, how could America change I this? I think that could be changed because people are becoming knowledgeable when people realize that, and I think that change started coming way back, but I think I've seen a big leap in that when I was 
in New Orleans, Louisiana, during Hurricane Katrina. And uh, that city was devastated. I did not leave. I stayed there at the time. A friend of ours, Malik Rahim, he developed Common Ground. He was a former member of the Black Panther Party. He developed, he opened his mother's house up and developed. He did not leave either. He was in the, on the lower, on the West Bank of New Orleans in a place called Algiers. And his home served as the first distribution center. He had been in touch with activists and people whom he knew, and he reached out to people. And, and the word spread that people in New Orleans needed help. But what they saw or what they didn't see, I'm talking about many people, especially white and young white, what they didn't see was the American government, the system of the, or the state of Louisiana, trying to aid the people who were being affected and afflicted by Hurricane Katrina. I think this opened up in, uh, 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 you know, a canal of compassion. And, and not only a canal of compassion, but it also opened up a window, and, and they began to see that, wait a minute, why are these folks being treated like this? We, this is a, I'm talking about the younger people. I ain't talking about the older one. And they begin to question this. But the point is they begin to flock down to New Orleans in hordes to give support to people in New Orleans that the government refused to give any aid to. And I think not that this was the beginning, but this was a high point in, in evolution in this society where people who formerly distanced themselves and took refuge in the fact that they were white and that it wasn't being done to them, they say, hold up, wait a minute, you are doing this in our name. That was the statement. We're not going to let you do this in our name anymore. And they showed their support to people who were neglected by a government that alleges to protect everyone. They were sort of the hypocrisy of it, and where they say, well, no longer will we take refuge in the fact that we are that we are white, that we have privilege because of our skin color. We have this kind of privilege. Everybody should have the same kind of privilege, and when everybody don't have it, nobody has it. And I think this was the approach, and this is the approach now, I think, in many whites and people around the world I've come to realize and not just in, in America, not just in Louisiana where I was born, but all over the United States, people have begun to, uh, to realize, because I go to many colleges and universities and I speak to a lot of people with regards to our case, but it is always, I put it on a much broader scale because it is not just our case, it's just this thing is much bigger than the Angola Three. It goes beyond that, like prison. I focus on prison and solitary confinement. It is much bigger than Angola Three. That the fact that we were kept, I was kept in the cell for 31 years or 29 and 31 total. And Herman and Albert were there. Herman, before he died, more than 42 years, and Albert is still being held in solitary confinement. You know, the fact that that you know is is it still remains that he's in prison for those many years. But the point is this: that we are. Uh, Whites, the many, 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 many people have gotten on board and they realize uh, that there is something drastically wrong with the system and the system that, that we live in that is in America and how America treats some of its citizens. And I think they have taken a different attitude and a different approach. So can it be changed? Is it being changed? Of course, the change is so, but I can see the, I can see the evolution. Mm. I can see the change. I can see the, you know, people makes the difference. 
it is not the political system. I mean, the political system, we can, you know, relinquish our voice right to politician and believe that they're going to get things right. But it is the people who actually get things right. And quite recently understood how schools are financed in, in the U.S., that rich neighborhoods, their schools get more funding than poor neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You sort of keep structural differences between classes sort of mm-hmm. with that system. Of course. Will racism be gone in 100 years? I don't know if racism will be gone in 100 years. It could racism, but systemic racism is something that could be eliminated. Yeah. Individual racism, maybe organization racism. I think people have to deal with that themselves. Racism can, you know, but when there's a system that perpetrates racism, that embraces this this racism, that is when it becomes systemic. This is when racism has, is when, when the system practices racism. The fact that there might be organizations, there might be individuals who have a racist organization that discriminate against people based on the color of their skin, it really would make a difference if the system itself was totally right. And the system is not totally right because racism is still part of the system itself. Will that be undermined? Of course. I think younger people today and people being hired today, uh, people being, uh, I mean, people in places today, I think it makes a real difference. It, it does. It makes a difference. And I think racism can be ironed out uh, systemic-wise uh, in perhaps less than 100 years. But I cannot quite say the same can be applied for whether or not individuals who chose to be racist by ignorance, that is their karma. But they won't be able to practice their racism through systemic means. And I think if we eliminate racism systemic-wise, I think it's just a matter of time before racism will be eliminated. How long that will take, I have no idea. But it doesn't and should not have to take 100 years. I think we are have been propelled in a direction that has accelerated and we are moving forward real, real, real fast. And where we are going, we are getting there pretty fast. That sounds hopeful. Yeah. If I could sort of make you the president of America in this instance, what would you do about the justice system? I see. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Is that uh well I think Someone else being president, what it should be done. I don't think I, if by magic, I would. I don't think I would want to become president no, but, of that system. But, but, no, but, you are but if, 
but hypothetical but, yeah question. hypothetical Sorry. yeah it's hypothetical uh, okay so i'll answer in, a, in probably in, a, in my answer won't be hypothetical but i think a person who become a president of the united states the justice department it depends on on whom you know you live in we live in a system where there are three branches of government people ask well why don't president obama do something and it's a legitimate question why won't he do something but the point is he can't do anything. When I say can't, not so much as he won't. He can't because we live in a system, a legal system, that denies him the right to interfere in an issue such as ours. He is over the exec- executive branch of government. You have the Justice Department, of course. Holder can be, it, it, it can filter through him. But then you have each state that is sovereign, and you have people who are, part of the justice system within that particular state. They are op- they are, they, they, they are, it's set up that they could operate what they call on a sovereign basis, and they can do certain things in a certain state that Obama can have no. In other words, because he's over the executive branch, you got the judicial branch and you got the legislative branch, and all of these function in different manners. And while Obama can pardon a federal prisoner, legally he cannot. In a field, in state prisoners. And we are, you know, we were state prisoners. But what he can do, the Justice Department, it can, with all the clamor, with what is going on, it can be filtered down to Holder, who can have impact on different other systems within the state. Holder's office is over all of this entire, you know, his, he is over whatever the Justice Department is. He is over all of this. Things would have to come from his office. And there is, to this degree now, as a result of our efforts, and when I say our efforts, I'm talking about people collectively as a whole, there will be in Louisiana, like elsewhere, there's an investigation into the justice system, you know, how they deal with state prisoners, how they deal with criminology. And there is, there is an effort to not so much as reform that, but to investigate it, and to eliminate it, hopefully, but for sure, to, investi- to investigate the justice system in, in Louisiana. We had a representative. Uh, uh, he was representative. He's now a congressperson. He's in, he's in D.C. Now he was in Louisiana. He was a representative in the state you know, house in Louisiana. He's now a congressperson in D.C., and he can kind of make things. He have already initiated hearings. Uh, future hearings into the justice system in Louisiana and how it impact. Uh, Hola has already stated, and even President Obama has stated, that the criminal justice system, how it impacts minorities and blacks much more than it do other folks, and that this is something that they have to deal with. And so we are at a point now where we are, people are discussing this, people in higher places are discussing this. So do I think whether there will be a change as a result of, you know, I, yeah, of course, there will be a change because people uh, are want to change. There are so many people out crying, you know, out pouring out their hearts that what you, what, what's being done is wrong, and I think all of this will impact. And I think if people are the ones who will make the change, and I think people are, are pushing for change. Yeah. This come about a, as a result of their getting knowledge as to what is going on, and like I say, when they saw, they had visual pictures and, uh, 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 of the impact of when a government neglects a people, what happens. And I think 
people want to change this. If it were up to you, would there be a death penalty at all? No. No, it, it, it wouldn't. And I say this because I have three reasons. I mean, there are a million, but there are more. But I have three reasons why there shouldn't be a death penalty. One is Albert Wood Fox, Herman Wallace, and myself. Mm. I say this because had not it been for this moratorium on the death sentence that was placed on it by the United States Supreme Court in Farman versus Georgia, Herman Albert and I would be dead now. I wouldn't have never gotten out. Herman would have died not just last year. He would have died sometime in, in the 70s, and Albert would have been executed also sometime in the 70s. It was because of this moratorium placed on the death sentence that we weren't executed. Uh, and, the, and the fact is this, that they would have executed myself, Herman, who subsequently got his charge, uh, throw it, I throw it out that, in other words, when Herman died, his sentence was overturned completely. He was innocent when the judge overturned his case. But had he not lived up until last year or year before, he would have died in 72. So if, uh, and I would have died much sooner. I wouldn't have never got out of prison mm-hmm. because they, were, they wanted to really execute us. It just so happened there was a moratorium. Mm. On the death centers, and so yeah, those are the three reasons why I I I, I think there should not be a death penalty because it executes. Uh, it could the system is set up and designed in such a way that they could execute you legally, but you could be morally innocent of the crime in which you died for. Of course, and that happens. It happened has yeah. happened over and over and over, and so that's my reason. But is it also? I mean, if I would think why. About my moral grounds, sort of, probably my first argument would be that it's so strange that if somebody kills someone, that you sort of lower yourself to to the killer's level. You do the same thing. Exactly. Right. And, well, and this is what it is. It's retribution. It is not justice. Exactly. It is not the justice for people that, you know, the people have been offended by the fact that this individual was convicted of murder. Therefore, the people, in the name of the people, we are going to kill you. No, it is not. There may be some individuals and some people who may want, want, want this to happen, who may, uh, people who may have been impacted, people who see themselves as victim or who may have been victim might be persuaded. But the majority of the people don't, now it is, they don't believe in the implementation of the death of the death penalty. I'm thinking that when Osama bin Laden was killed, mm-hmm. that I'm not sure I wasn't in in the in the US by mm-hmm. the time, but I would assume that there was a majority that thought, well, that was a good thing mm-hmm. because he's he was behind 9/11. Mm-hmm. Would you say that it's the right thing for US to do to kill Osama bin Laden? Well, I I I, I wouldn't know. Like I say, that that is a, a branch of government that I, I do believe this, that America saw itself as being in a war, and not that it's justifiable. They saw Osama bin Laden being behind uh, or the mastermind, and I think from what I gather, he had admits this, and, and in doing so, I think this, that, you know, it would have been, you know, America, get away, people kill all the time. Governments around the world get away with killing people all, all the time. It is too bad, you know, I, I imagine when 9-11 occurred, America, you know, intent was to to kind of undermine or uh, uh, eliminate that 
particular source. And they were persistent in doing so, and they ended up killing Osama bin Laden. But in, in doing so, Osama bin Laden been replicated hundreds of thousands of times. You, you might kill a man, but you don't kill an idea. And I think in order to kill an idea, you have to undo what, what raised that idea, how that idea emerged in the first place. Because if you don't do that, then there will be other idealists. There will be other people who will have better, uh, uh, greater ideals and ideals that are, are much more, uh, that can be much more embraced than what Osama bin Laden and how he was able to persuade people. So you have to, uh, governments involved will have to, you know, they, they will have to solve that particular problem. Mm. But I do, I, do say, I do say this, that the killing of Osama bin Laden is, is not the end of the problem. And I think we see that today. Mm. Again, for instance, like the Black Panther Party's idea was, to, you know, to perhaps to try to change the system, to make the system more democratic. They destroyed the Black Panther Party as an organization, but the idea that the Black Panther Party had still exists. So, of course. Yeah, so they won't... Yeah, you know, Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden has been replicated hundreds of thousands of times. He's not dead because his idea still exists, and more people have embraced whatever idea he may have had. So the war goes on. How it will end, I have no idea. But I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Mm. How old are you, sir? 72. You look like you're in fantastic shape. That's Cool. Thanks a lot. Do you work Exercise. out? I do. And while I was in prison, you know, we were in our cells and we did a lot of exercise, individual exercise. And yeah. I used to do push-ups you know, and push-ups, side set-ups, whatever you call it. But and then there was a thing that I did called mental size. In other words, I used to lay in my bed and see myself exercising. Uh-huh. You know, which, yeah, uh, yeah, I call it mental size. Okay, and that works out? It worked for me. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> but I also did ex- strenuous exercise. Mm-hmm. I used to, we weren't allowed to come at one time, go on a yard, but we were allowed one hour out in the hall for ourselves, and I used to run up and down the hallway to see how many times I could you run that 150 yard or 75 yard in the hour that I have or in the, the amount of time that I get before I needed to shower. So, and then again, that at night, we, even though we were in uh, close cell confinement and we weren't in contact with each other, we developed a routine, a couple of us, people who were next door to each other. We used to get up every morning, go through. We learned the exercise that we would do, like side straddle hop, push-ups, set-ups, something like that, or deep knee bends or butterflies, we would call that, and, and, and we would do this. We did this for years. So I think that that kind of contributes to the fact that I, I'm in some shape. Now, and then I still exercise oh, you do. to some degree. No, not as much as I used to. I can't, but I, I do exercise. Okay. And mental size. Yeah? Your tattoos, have you done them yourself? Some of them, but they don't mean a thing. I was, most of them were did when I was about 16 years old. Okay. Yeah, I was about 16 years old. When that happened. All right. I see that, uh, you know, that this is actually a, a Swedish name. That's my son's name. Love. Love, yeah. Love. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. what we say, our mother's yeah. love, we pronounce like, you know, someone loved you. Yeah. Mother, then, nobody loved you like your mother. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that's what it was. And uh, that's what I saw here. Nothing, another heart with someone aura. It was a person in my life, my aunt, who died young. 
and she was really my friend. That was, you know, and that was something I considered a rose, but nothing, it, it didn't have any meaning. It was my own personal meaning, nothing that had any real significance. You were born in the 40s in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. You said earlier that you you see why you sort of got imprisoned. Because you became a criminal quite early on. Uh, no, I didn't become a criminal. Okay. I think a criminal criminality is a mentality. Okay. Uh, Sorry. So I don't think I ever was a criminal. Okay. Because you said somewhere that you weren't... I had become involved with the system. My first bout with the system. But in, in the States, when you, when you say... Uh, Criminal is the most like a men, men, mentality, and I think they use the word is used used loosely when they say career criminal. They apply that term to sometime an eighteen year old, and I wonder how can an eighteen year old who may have committed or may have been accused of committing a juvenile crime went to juvenile, and then later on, this individual because of their record, his or her record, they may have committed another crime that requires some adult measures, and they get sent to prison, and they are labeled career criminals. So, and I wonder how in the world could that happen? I've I written something about that one, you know, one time in the anger light while I was in prison. They were talking about people becoming career criminals. The career criminals to me are district attorneys, judges, all of these people who accept money for years and years and years, you know, who rapes the system, involve themselves in all type of corruptions and bribes they take and over a career of 40 years. And then when they retire, the taxpayers, they get a pension from the taxpayer. To me, these are career criminals. Why would you apply that term? This is rhetorical. I ain't talking to you. But why would they apply that term to an individual who had a, a record as a juvenile in which if you lived in the States and if you were black, you either had went to the Army or they had a place in juvenile detention for you or prison. Mm. And I wonder why would they take and label these individuals as career criminals, especially when at 18 years old they're in prison And they've been in prison for some now. There are some people who are labeled political, I mean, uh, career criminals who have been in prison now for 40 years when they were 20 years old. They're 60 now. How can you continue to label them criminals or career criminals? Mm. Could never be. I I call it people think in a box. If they don't broaden their scope about what these terms mean, and there's no reflection on anybody. It's just that these are terms that people do not think or people do not really dissect. And I think they make a mistake in doing so. A career criminal is not an individual who's been in prison for 40 years and went there when he was 20. Even though they're labeled career criminal, they're not. To me, the career criminal is whom I described mm-hmm. already. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. Um, oh, no, I'm not uh, offended. No, very good. Because, yeah. I, I mean, you have said something along the lines of uh, I wasn't an angel growing up or so. Which don't mean I was a criminal neither. No. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I no, I wasn't an angel. Meaning that I did not do it. Meaning that no. Look, I walked in stores. I was hungry, and I read something off the shelf, and I'm eating it. That don't make me a criminal. No. I mean, you got judges do that. You got people who work in high places, 
I was hungry. Yeah. And I walk in a place I didn't, but I, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't kill nobody for this. But if I walk in a place and saw something, and if I, I'm hungry and I ate it, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't consider myself a criminal. I, 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 I don't see, and I wouldn't see why nobody else would consider me a criminal. And when I say I wasn't an angel, it means this, that not that I was a devil. Mm-hmm. It means that one thing, uh, I've done some things referred to the fact that I wasn't an angel. I was trying to compare and make a, an assessment as to why I was, of course, I was I was arrested for some things, and I let people know, you know, I wasn't a quote angel, and we use that term lightly, meaning that, you know, you did some done some little devilish thing, and you might when I say devilish thing, you do some some things that that goes against the grain of the system, like some places you can't spit in society, but some people do it anyway. In that sense, there, you know, I meant that in that sense, and not so much as. I was a, I was a criminal. Oh, okay. I didn't mean to, to associate the thing that I was doing when I say I wasn't an angel. I didn't mean for anyone to get the idea that I was a criminal either. I'm thinking that from a structural sort of uh, political standpoint, would you say that you did you get the chances when g- growing up? Did you get the chances to become what you wanted? No, I don't think. When I when you, when you say let me first before I answer when you say did I get the chance I didn't have the opportunity that the average white person had in a, in a, or the white young white person had in in America I didn't have the same opportunity did I get the chance in most cases no I, there are some things that I wanted to do in life that had I gotten the chance I probably would have done those things or had the opportunity. Had the time allowed me to take advantage of an opportunity, but I wasn't allowed to take advantage of certain opportunities mm. because they weren't there for me. What were your dreams growing up? I really thought I was going to be the middleweight champ of the world. I used to, I used to love to fight. I, oh, over the ensuing years, I learned I wanted to really play football. I wasn't big enough to play football, but I wanted to the, as an alternative. And at one time, I wanted to go to the to the army. I okay. had this idea of, of going to the home, and at one time went down to the U.S. Custom and tried to uh, to enlist. I was about, I'm trying to tell, about maybe 17 at the time, but it didn't happen. That opportunity wasn't for me. But you did get to do some boxing. I did do some boxing. Yeah, I did some boxing, and because of the fact that I was I was rearrested and my parole was violated, the fact that and I. If you read this book, you get an idea as to what I'm saying, but I could give you. I was boxing, and I pointed out in the book, you know, that I did some boxing. I never got, I did semi-pro boxing. Uh, what happened was I had had a previous record, and I was arrested, rearrested with a guy who had a record, and they violated my parole, and that sent me back. They violated, I was in, they kept me in jail. They put a hold on me. I got out on bond. I was arrested with this individual one night. And this guy had a—I was on parole at the time. And this guy had been a prisoner, but everybody in my neighborhood had been—all my uncles had been to prison. And on parole, you can't associate with someone who had been on, on prison. That means this, that even though they allowed me to go back to a neighborhood, I probably couldn't associate with nobody in the neighborhood because just about every young male in the neighborhood had some kind of juvenile record if you were black. You had a juvenile record that you have been arrested by the police and they could find reason to violate you. And so they violated me for 
because I was with a guy who had a previous record, uh, not because I had done anything. Uh, so if the police see you standing on the street talking to another person, they could they could imprison well, you they, for that. They could arrest you for that. If they, they could say you look like somebody who committed a crime. In other words, they needed to clean the books on it. And perhaps when, if you read the portion in a book, it'll put in context what, what, what I'm saying, because I can't just do it all in, 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 in summarize it. Mm. But yeah, that was a law, now 72 law that allowed them to arrest you, even though you may have a job. You were standing on a cone, and they would say you look like somebody who did this, and they'll take you to the precinct, and they will keep you there for 72 hours. If you had a job, you won't have it when you come back. Mm. That because that was a law that stemmed from slavery. It was a 19, uh, 1872, but they call it a 72, where they could, if there's no visible means of support, if you have no visible means of support. And this law, ironically, came out after slavery, where blacks had no visible means of support. They wanted to put them back either in prison or on a plantation. They couldn't put them back on a plantation. Some went back on a plantation and sharecropped. But if you didn't have a job, they could put you in jail and send you to prison. And in the, in, 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 in the, in, in the ensuing days while you were held in prison, on a 72, many people got picked up. And I mentioned it in the book. Many people who got picked up on a 72 of no means of visible means of support. They had visible means of support, but they ended up in prison. And some never got out of prison because they ended up being coerced, forced, beaten, to plead to a crime or to say that, yeah, well, I couldn't, because they didn't want to be terrorized by the police anymore. They did not want to be beaten by the police anymore. And I'm telling you, some of the biggest terrorists, you know, at during that time, they were police. They, can t- they didn't know how to terrorize the black community. And this is what it was. Yeah. This is what you had to deal with. Perhaps a strange question, but do you love America? I love the people in America. Mm. People in America are beautiful. Most people, they are beautiful. I mean, especially this day and time, and it's been like that all, all, always. I've never hated. I hate oppression. I've learned. I learned. I grow to hate oppression and you know and terror tactics. I learned to hate, hate, hate this. But I don't. I don't attribute this to the people in America because uh, again, the majority of the people in America are beautiful. And then again, let me say this for the record, that you know some people think America is heaven. And guess what? America is heaven for some. You know, it is heaven for some. But for some, you know, I let people know that for some in heaven, there are some people catching hell. Over the years and over the period of the history of America, which is, quote, heaven, many people caught hell and many people still catching hell. Are you hopeful about America? Again, like I say, I am. Yes, I'm, I'm hopeful that because people are learning now that the hypocrisy that exists in America is not really what America could be and is. They just have to eliminate the hypocrisy. And the people are not the one who, who makes the, you know, who erect laws that produces or induces hypocrites. I mean, it is those who imply those laws in one area to some people and misplace them with other people in other areas or misapply them in other areas with other people. We talked about this before we started the interview, I think, that you actually did, you made candy while in prison. How did you come up with that idea? Well, it was a combination. Of, uh, I wasn't just me. It was, I think it was Herman and I at that time. But I knew how to make candy before I went to pecan candy. 
used to call them pralines at the time before I went to, uh, before I was sent to prison. Uh, I had learned how to make candy, uh, and it's called praline. It's a, it's a New Orleans, uh, it's a southern product where people, it was a mixture of, you know, butter, vanilla, sugar, pecan, and water, or whatever, and, you know, and make candy. In prison, I kind of, because we, it was just being in a cell, we were allowed cold drink cans, and um, came up with the idea that if, we had aluminum cans that we could take the top, eliminate, the, take the top off them, and just make a handle, erect a crude handle made out of whatever, with some form of wrap to make sure you didn't burn your hand. And we just that was a toilet in our cell. We had toilet paper, and we would use toilet paper. You'd be surprised how hot aluminum can can get. You know, if you wrap, you make. We call it a burner. We would, but you know what? I have this thing. I would give you. If you probably go online, it ain't more than about seven or eight minutes. No, I, I saw that. I described the kitchen sisters. Yeah. Oh, you saw that? Yeah, I saw yeah. that. Yeah, well, that's what, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and that's the way it was done. We had it. It was cruelly done. And you we, can also— In defiance of everything else, we weren't supposed to do that, but we also had people, you know, we were there for a while, and as long as the brass didn't come through and find out some things was— we were doing some things, the sergeant or the person that were on— you know, they turn their back on, yeah. on you and, and let certain things happen because I think some, some of them understood that, you know, you wasn't doing any major violating. You was just doing something might have been against prison rules, but the only, you know, you were doing something that was pretty good. And so they could turn their backs and turn their blind eye to it. They just yeah. don't get caught. If you get caught or if the brass come through, then I'm going to have to write you up or I'm going to have to discipline discipline you but other than that we were able to do it that's how i was able to do it then a lot of time i got from from the officers extra milk or extra butter or extra sugar when i didn't get it from individuals on the tier sometime i would ask the officer to go on another flat on another tier and get it from from someone else who was willing to share i had people because i used to send the candy and spray the candy out and i used to give it to some guys on death row and so I was able to, you know, to, uh, you know, they get sugar every morning, sugar for breakfast, sugar for coffee, but people didn't use sugar. And I would ask them to save it for me. They would get butter or margarine. I would say, well, save that for me as well. And then when I accumulate enough of it, make candy. Mm. But I used, instead of water, I used milk. And when I got out, I just kind of perfected it a little more. I used two kinds of milk now. And uh, I added a couple more ingredients to yeah. it. And you sell it online. I sell it online, yeah. yeah. I sell it online. Uh, it, it went good. The Kitchen Sisters, uh, uh, they, um, David Nelson and Nikki, they did a lot because right after Katrina, they did an interview and the candy was, they featured the candy, but that was just a, the hidden kitchen was just a, a means of getting our story out. The story about the candy, I wasn't intrigued with that. Yeah. What was more intriguing is NPR, NPR used that particular story to get our the story of the Angola Three out okay. into the public in that particular phone with their show and people all over all over the country who heard that who heard that program it opened their hearts up and especially it happened during a time when Katrina occurred and people were impacted by that by that story that 
that the kitchen sisters did with regards to the candy. But it wasn't about really, to, it was about hitting kitchen and the candy with them. But for me, it was more about the story that comes with the candy. And we were able to do something on NPR with Angola 3 that NPR didn't do with with, with Mumio because the Patrolman Association, when NPR was about to do a story on Mumia, there was, you know, there was some dissent with regards to the Philadelphia Police Benevolent Association, and they backed up, and they could not get his story out. But NPR, through the candy, got mine out, and David and Nikki did a good job. We are friends now. We are cool, and anytime they were asking me to make candy, send candy, I say, any. You know, they have a grandfather clause. They can get, I'm, I'll stop what I'm doing and make candy ship to them. Mm-hmm. When you got out of prison, did you get some kind of uh, no. compensation? No, they gave, me a, they gave me a $10 check. And they should have gave me 20 but they gave me a $10 check and say that. And that really couldn't get me home. I couldn't, I was like 150 miles away from where I needed to go at. So good thing they had people waiting at the gate for me. But no. To make a long story short, no. They didn't. They, they gave me a ten dollar check, and I, unfortunately, I should have kept that check, but I needed the money, and so I cashed it. But that would, I would, I should have kept that check to show. But no, I haven't been compensated for it. And you will never be. No, not the fact that I was in prison all that time. But what may happen is I could be compensated because we filed a civil lawsuit against my being held in solitary confinement for those many years, and the code agreed that my 29 years constituted cruel and unusual punishment. And so, therefore, this is pending. Actually, I will go see Woodfox because we are still part of a civil litigation against the state of Louisiana because we filed, and the code ruling same to, as to Woodfox and, and to Herman, who's you know now deceased, but it ruled that. Yeah, it, it, it ruled, ruled that my time, place in solitary confinement was cruel and unusual. And this is something that's pending. So I might, you know, because we act for punitive damage and compensatory damage. Of course. So we may receive some funds as a result of that whenever that case settled. But it's been going on for 17, 18 years. It hasn't occurred. It hasn't happened yet. And it's been combined. The civil case and the criminal case are combined together. Well, I, I wish you, uh, I hope that you get to finish that soon. Mm. Yeah, hopefully it, it will be. There are some, a few things that should have been done, but it hasn't happened. Mm. It should have, it should have been over with. It's just a boat. Yeah, yeah, it's a boat. <laughs> okay. Where do you live now, sir? I live in Austin. Why? No reason why. I mean, Katrina, I, I, because I lost, wherever I was living at, you know, the, the, the infrastructure Even though I was there for during the time of Katrina, the house was unlivable. I was no longer staying in that place at the time. But I was there until I I could get out until the water just recede and go down until I was getting ready to travel to Portugal during the time I was first going to California before Katrina happened. That stopped me from the weather. It kind of held things up. But I was supposed to leave from there, from California, and go to uh, Portugal, Mm -hmm. uh, in which I did, but I was delayed. And, you know, when I was through... I, it was in my, I had in my mind probably to go live in California, somewhere in California, in maybe Oakland. But I changed my mind. I thought Austin, Texas would be a better place. I had plans. I said, well, you know, Austin is a nice place. Anyway, in Texas, 
I would live, it wouldn't be Austin. And so Austin was the place that I chose. Mm. So that's the reason why I'm in Austin now. It's not because I couldn't I couldn't not be in other places, not because I couldn't be in New Orleans if I wanted to, but I don't want to be in New Orleans. And again, like I say, I had planned to leave New Orleans long before Katrina occurred. It's just I was waiting for the right time, and uh, Katrina provided me uh, with the opportunity to do so at the time that I did. Do you like it in Austin? I love it in Austin. Yeah, I I love it in Austin. It's laid back. It's cool. It's, It's pretty decent, yeah. You were in prison for 31 years. I mean, we talked about food earlier, but how about sex? <laughs> how about sex? You don't get, they don't, you, they weren't going to get your woman in yourself. Of course. I mean, I mean, you must have thought tons of sex. Of course I thought about it, but, uh, you know, I understood where I was. And, of course, you know, that's the, you know, uh, yeah, I, I understood where I was. And I understood that that was something not so much as, I, I couldn't do. I couldn't have what they call sex in no, prison because where we were, we it, there was no women. And I, don't get me wrong, I don't have anything against you Homos, know gays or anything like yeah. that. Homosexual. Mm-hmm. I don't nothing at all. It's just that it wasn't our thing. It wasn't my thing. We felt, and I felt personally being in prison. You know, if there were, you know, I felt that we were all getting had by the system, and a lot of time in prison, in, in a situation like that where sex are denied, uh, you're denied sex, then that, that you know, you, you create means of, of having sex. And in the process of creating means, there are people who come to prison who are what people may call weaker inmates who uh, can be subjected to and caused, you know, and intimidated into being your outlet for your feeling. And that was a thing that I felt personally was more oppressive than the system itself. Why would you subject someone you know, in a situation like, like, like this to that. So, no, it was beyond my belief, but it was also against the Black Panther Party idea to, to, to rape, uh, in, you know, other individuals. And this is one of the only way that you can perhaps have in a cell or in a false situation. We were not in a dormitory where there were some gays or some people who wanted this to happen. And then again, it just wasn't my forte. No. No. Of course, I ma- if you want to ask me, would I masturbate it? Of course I masturbate Yeah. No, I'm not going to ask you that because I... I you I might want to scratch that up. I mean, you say, well, what did I do for sex? I could have just made a long story short and say, I masturbated. Yeah, of course you did. But but my question is, when you got out... Of course, when I got out, I I, lived with, I stayed with a woman who, who came to whom I had... I met a lot of people over the years, and I stayed with... a a lady for four or five years, Marion Brown. She lives in, a, she was a former member of the Black Panther Party, whom I knew before I went to prison. Okay. She had went to California. She had really married. She and her husband were separated. She had had a son. And she got heard about our case, and she started coming to see us. And she started just maybe a year or so before I was released. And once I was released, she was one of the ones who came, was at the gate. So we kind of got together once I got out. About a week or so, we talked and realized that we might could make this work. And and we uh, got together and we stayed together for some years. And you didn't uh, remember the first thing you ate when you came out. But I, do you remember? It was a roast the f- beef. It was a roast beef sandwich. Yeah. Too. But now at home, home-cooked meal, it probably was maybe some... Seafood, seafood gumbo or something yeah. like that. But do you remember the first time you had sex? I do. Yeah. It was about a with Marion, yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 It was Marion about, about I say it was less than a week before I got But out. but I mean you must have it must have been wonderful. 
It, it was, but you, you know, you had to realize this, that you had been away from that for, for a minute, so you had to get back in the groove. But of course, you longed for it. It took a while, you, you know, the, the compatibilities of what you're doing was, something that you have to, you know, want to do. And it was enjoyable, of course. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> I mean, way too personal. I'm blushing. Would you like to recommend anything? No, I would like just, you know, I'd just like to continue to say, I believe this, that the listeners, especially to people here, uh, May I is, you know, she has done a noble thing in learning about this case. And she has taken the initiative to embrace our cause. And we are, are very grateful, and we're asking people to embrace me. Yeah, she is launching a, a record called Yellow Ribbon, and, and she's, uh, from what I gather, she, she's taken upon herself to contribute, you know, also to our cause, whatever she get out of this. And she didn't, did not have to do this, but just the mere fact of our being associated with her, uh, you know, has give us a broader platform and give us another audience, and we really do appreciate this. So we ask the listeners if they want to support us, to support me. Yeah. Very good. Cool. Who do you think I should interview on Varvet International? Well, maybe you ought to answer. Jindal, Governor Jindal is going to be here in UK. He has been given a forum to speak on human rights. He is his desire is to probably either uh, become a nominee for president of the United States or he want to run on a ticket with someone. I would like to interview him and want to know his, why is he, of course, you could get information, I, you could get it. He is, like I say, he's going to be at the, the U.K. embassy speaking on human rights. Okay. The question needs to be asked, are you familiar with the case of the Angola Three? And what do you believe about this? Have you done anything to to offset this injustice since you are so much you know, involved in the injustice? My question would be, you know, your question would be to him, what have you done, you know, to exact justice for these men? All of the evidence been overturned in this case. Two federal judges have overturned it. It's waiting to be an in bank. Robert King brought along with Cedric Richmond, before he became congressman, brought thousands of petitions to your desk twice in which you, you've rejected those petitions. You did not meet with them. Now you are interested in the implementation of justice. You are, you know, a human rights violation. What is being done when amnesty has gotten on board? So many people around the world has gotten on board that this is uh, the thing that is happening or uh, has happened to the angle of three in your town, what have you done or what is being done about it and, and see what he said. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you. That's Mr. Robert King. I'm very happy and honored to have met him and humbled. And if you would like to know more about the Angola 3, there is a documentary called The Angola 3. It came out in 2008. It's a really good movie. And uh, there's also a website called uh, angola3.org where you can check what you can do and or you could buy the Maya song on iTunes. It's called Yellow Ribbon and Maya, I pronounce it in Swedish. It's supposedly uh, pronounced 
Meja in English. M-E-J-A. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you Uber for sponsoring the show. And listeners, don't forget to use Varvet as referral code when you start an account if you are in Sweden. I would like to thank Lovisa Olsson for editing. I would like to thank Christina Jolingbiro for producing. I will talk to you in two weeks if you want to. I hope you do. Bye-bye for now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.